This summer, I decided that I was tired of the clutter here in the front of this room, the clutter being my clutter, the clutter of the technology that I use for teaching and uh, for the various presentations and work that I do um, up in front of everyone. And so I started looking online for a cart that could contain all of this technology that I need. And this is not the first time I've looked for such a cart. I've looked many times in the past, and I came to the same conclusion as I did in the past, which is what I need doesn't exist. Not exactly. And so either I was going to have to live with it the way it was, or I was going to have to Frankenstein something together to try to cobble something that sort of approximated what I needed. And that's what I chose to do. So I started thinking about all the various pieces and parts that need to go together. I started thinking about what kind of hardware I would need to make that happen. I started ordering the the rolling cart part, the part that the display would mount to, and the various pieces and parts that I needed. But because this was a project that couldn't be solved by buying one thing, I knew it was going to stretch out over time. And I knew that I would be buying certain elements that might not work. And so I would order something, it would arrive, I would check it to see if it actually fits, if it actually is the size that I needed, and then I would either send it back or if it was cheap enough, I would just you know, throw it into the storage room because maybe it'll be useful someday. And eventually I started to get all the pieces and parts together. But not only was it a problem of finding the right pieces and parts, but sometimes the very bolts that I needed weren't necessarily provided with the thing I was buying because they weren't necessarily, they were definitely not designed to be put together the way I was putting them together. And so that meant there were many times when I couldn't make any project, any progress on this project because I lacked certain pieces that I needed. Projects stall when we lack something that we need. Either we lack creativity to solve a problem that we have, or we lack a tool that we need to put it together, or sometimes we lack the elements, the the pieces and parts that we need to make it happen. Eventually, I did get it done, and it turned out fine. It's not beautiful. It's not great. But it's definitely better than what we had before. But you know this in your own life. And maybe you're even thinking back of situations in your life where something that should have been easy to accomplish, a project that you wanted to get done, dragged on forever, Because you couldn't get the pieces and parts that you needed. Because you lacked something to help you finish the job and close the task. And as we've studied the book of James here together, this first paragraph that goes from basically verse 2 to verse 12. We've learned in previous sessions that you and I, as Christians, are a project. That God is working on us. And the Bible says that what what are called trials, that is, the problems that we face in life, the things that cause us heartache and sorrow, the things that frustrate us to no end, are the ways in which God puts us in the furnace, in the fire, to refine us, to burn off the problems and impurities that come with us being sinful people with a sin nature, and to refine us and strengthen our faith in God. And as we've studied this passage together, we've seen that what God calls us to do is to persevere through trials. That is to continue 
following Jesus, to continue in faith and good works, despite the discouragement that trials bring into our lives, despite the temptations that they bring into our lives, to just quit on the Christian life and walk away. God calls us to persevere through trials. And at the end of last week's message, we came to verse 4 of James chapter 1. And in that verse, we saw what the payoff for all of this would be. Verse 4 says, let perseverance finish its work so that, and the word so that, I've told you before, indicate result. Here's the result God is after. So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What God is doing to us in trials, what God is doing for us and in us in trials is completing us. He is forming the image of Jesus Christ into our character so that we start to look more like Jesus and less like the sinners that we came into this world as and less like the world around us that is in rebellion to God. God is completing us through the process of the Christian life and trials are a really big part of that completing process. But at the end there, he says, God wants you to not lack anything. And we know that this process, this project won't be complete until we stand in God's presence. But this is what we're moving toward. We're moving toward having everything we lack filled. And the project that God is doing in us won't be completed until then. Now, we saw in the last message... That God is completing us through trials. But here's the truth. We're still not there yet. God is doing the work, but there's still work to be done. And that means we lack certain things. Now here in verse 5, as we come to the message for today, James picks up on that word lack. He says, not lacking anything. And then he says this, if any of you lacks wisdom. And so he begins to Tell us what assistance God offers us in the trials that we face in life. Perseverance will give us everything we lack eventually, but until then, we sometimes still lack wisdom. And in this verse, James tells us what we should do in those situations. What do we do when the fires of trials have us in a position where we don't know what the right answer is? where we don't know what the right thing to do is, where morally speaking, we know what's right and wrong, but we're not sure how that applies in the various situations that we find ourselves in. What do we do in those moments? Well, the passage begins by acknowledging that in many situations, we are going to lack wisdom. Again, verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, and this phrase, if any of you, is in the English translation that we use, a way of indicating a possibility. It sounds to us like James is saying, maybe you're lacking wisdom, and if that's so, then here's what you do. But in the original language, the wording is much more certain than that. It's not if you lack wisdom, it's more like because you lack wisdom, or when you lack wisdom. In other words, the way that James phrased this in the original Greek assumes that all of us are going to lack wisdom at times in our life when we face the trials of life. When God puts our faith in the fire, there are going to be times when we don't know what to do. 
And we should just assume that these moments are going to come in our lives. Not knowing what to do when we're suffering is a part of life. It's part of the Christian life. We face problems which test our faith in God. But as part of that test, we sometimes don't know what to do. And so this passage begins to supply us with an answer. It tells us what we should do in those moments when we don't know what to do. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. What is God's prescription for us when we face the trials of life? It is this. When we lack wisdom, God commands us to ask him for it. When we find ourselves at a point in life of questioning, when our faith is being tested, and we don't know how to respond to the test, God commands us to ask him for the answer. He, asks, he commands us to ask him for wisdom. Now, the wisdom that we lack in this verse is actually the wisdom that we need for dealing with trials. I believe that God does answer the, every prayer for wisdom from believers in a general situation. If you ask God to make you into a wiser man or woman of God, I believe God loves hearing that prayer, that he honors that prayer, and that he will make you wiser. But I don't think that James is speaking of wisdom in a general context here. I think the entire context of this paragraph shows us that James is speaking of wisdom in the moments of trial. He's speaking of a specific type of wisdom, a specific need for wisdom. And that is the wisdom that we need when we are suffering. The wisdom that we need when we are in a trial of our faith. I believe that's what he's addressing in this passage. And what he's trying to tell us here is that we should ask God for that wisdom. And the truth of the matter is that we like to look to other sources for help. When we don't know what to do, what do we do? Well, we might talk to other people, sometimes indiscriminately in terms of whether or not they're actually someone who is a source of wisdom. Sometimes we do internet searches Or we consult personalities like Dr. Phil. Is he still a thing? I don't know. But, but the point is we like to look outside of ourselves and outside of God. We look to this world for the wisdom that we lack often in life. God tells us when you feel those moments of uncertainty, when your faith is in the test and you don't know what to do, your first instinct and his command to you, his invitation to you is ask me. Looking again at the text of the verse, it's important to understand what's going on in this passage. When James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, that sounds like a suggestion to us. It sounds like the way that we talk to one another. We say, if, um, if you're having a particular problem, well, you should ask this person in the church. They've dealt with that problem, or they work in that industry, or whatever. But the truth of the matter is, the way that this phrase, you should ask, in our English Bible, is phrased in the original Greek, it's a command. Ultimately, what James is saying here is, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God. That's how the language breaks down in the original Greek. It's a command to ask God. And to look to him for the wisdom that we need. Now, 
Let's take a minute and think about what wisdom is, because, again, this is a point of unclarity for many people. A lot of times, wisdom and knowledge are conflated. They're, they're equated. They're other words that might rhyme with that word um, that are made to sound like they're the same thing, and they are definitely not the same thing. Knowledge, of course, is the accumulation of facts. It's an understanding of concepts or of people or of the world. And knowledge is really important. And and knowledge is part of wisdom. There's no doubt about it. But it's not the same. Wisdom is the proper application of knowledge. It's taking what someone knows or could know and putting it to use in the best possible way. One way that I like to think about this is perhaps the difference between an automotive engineer and a mechanic. An automotive engineer can look at a car and tell you what every part in the engine and every part in the car is doing, how it functions, why it's there, what it provides to the vehicle itself. A mechanic can probably do the same thing, maybe not at the same level, of detail or theory, but they can tell you what all the parts do as well. But here's what they can do. They can apply that knowledge. They can actually remove, they can find and diagnose the part that's not functioning properly. And they can take that part off and replace it with a working part. They can help you find the right replacement part to put in there and put it in for you. They can apply automotive knowledge in a way that maybe an automotive engineer can, but maybe not. This is the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied. And specifically for us as Christians, wisdom is taking the knowledge of God's word and what it means to follow Jesus Christ, live obediently to him, develop a holy life. Wisdom is taking those concepts, those truths from God's word and figuring out what they mean for us in our everyday decision making. And in the moments of trial, when we are suffering, when we're under pressure, when we're uncertain about what's going to happen, that's when we need wisdom the most. Because in the moment of trials, there is always the opportunity to make a bad choice. We can always choose a sinful way out of the situation that might relieve the pressure, but it doesn't glorify God. Nor does it refine our faith the way that God designed trials to do. Or we might live in an ambiguous situation where there are many ways we could see to glorify God in a situation, but we know that we can't maybe do both, and so it's unclear for us what we should do. Let me give you an illustration, an example. When we're dealing with the application of wisdom in the moments of trial, We need God's help to figure out how to do that. I have a friend who maybe 30 years ago was a young married man. And he and his wife had two sons, two very small sons. They were both employed and um, they were kind of upwardly mobile young people. Um, earning good salaries, had lots of career headway in front of them. They lived in a pretty nice suburb in a large city. They had everything that our American world tells us people should want in many ways. They had the family, they had the cars, they had the 
you know, the looking forward to career success, they had money and so on. And then the man became a Christian. And things changed for them. His desires changed. The ways that he wanted to spend his time, the things that he and his wife used to do together, some of them sinful things, became not as important to him. Instead, he wanted to spend time studying the word. He wanted to spend time going to small group. He wanted to spend time worshiping the Lord at church. And his wife didn't really want any of those things. His priorities changed. His way of looking at what is right and wrong changed. His way of using his money changed. And gradually over time, because his wife did not become a Christian, there became a a stronger and stronger split between them. Now, the Bible addresses this kind of situation. It tells Christian spouses what to do when you're married to someone who's not a Christian but is willing to remain in the marriage. There's very specific guidance in God's word about how to do this. In this man's situation, though, his wife didn't want to remain in the marriage. And she issued to him essentially an ultimatum, saying either stop following Christ, stop being religious, is the way she probably would have put it, but for him it meant stop being a Christian, stop acting like a Christian, or I'm leaving. Renounce your faith in Jesus, or at least stop practicing your faith in Jesus, or I'm going to divorce you. That was the ultimatum that he was issued. And now he's got a choice. Because on one hand, he wants to have a a family life that reflects the glory of God. He wants to love his wife the way Christ loved the church. He wants to be home with his sons and become the godly influence and father that God wants him to be. That's part of his deep desire as a Christian. And yet, as a Christian, he can't renounce Jesus. Jesus said, you can't follow me if somebody else is more important to you than I am. And so he was in a tough spot here, a desire to glorify God in all of his life and a tough choice between keeping his marriage intact or following Christ. Some people in this situation try to find that compromise. They take their faith undercover. And so maybe they stop attending church, but you know, they listen to Christian radio or they, they try to cultivate the Christian life in some way or another, but they do it in such a way that it's not so off-putting to their spouse. But that's not real Christianity. Real Christianity is following Jesus and doing everything he told you to do. And that has a lot to do with how you spend your time and how you spend your money and how you talk to people. And so ultimately, my friend was put in a tough spot. And ultimately, his wife divorced him because he chose Jesus over preserving the relationship that existed. And actually, in the course of their divorce, his wife tried to get complete custody of the kids. She tried to keep them out of his life. He had to go to court to fight just to get joint custody so he could continue to be in the lives of his sons in an ongoing way. This is a tough trial for anybody to encounter. This happened to a young Christian. What do you do in this situation? What assistance is available to someone in a a situation like this who wants to honor God, but they don't necessarily know how? They don't necessarily know what decisions could be made to give God a God-honoring response. 
The answer is in our text. What my friend needed was wisdom. He needed to apply the principles of Scripture in a godly way in his life, and ultimately he did. He chose Jesus, which is exactly what Jesus said must happen if you're going to be a genuine follower of his. But in the moment, what assistance did he have? He had this. He could ask God for help. He could ask God to supply him with the wisdom that he needed, the the right application of Scripture in his life, in order to help him get through the trial and glorify God. And ultimately, God did supply him with the wisdom that he needed, not only for that trial, but God used the trial in his life, just like James 1 says he will. God used the trial in his life to strengthen his faith, to burn off the priorities in his life, that still needed refining. God used this trial in his life to cause him to trust God because really that's all he was left with. He had to trust God because he didn't know what his life would look like on the other side of that divorce. And in the 30 years or more that have transpired between then and now, God has continued to work in this man's life. God has continued to strengthen his walk with Christ. God has made this man a wise man, and he is now looked to for leadership as an elder in his local church. As you and I live the Christian life, we're going to encounter trials. Our faith is going to be put to the test. And when that happens, we feel very alone oftentimes. But we're not alone. God tells us that there is a remedy for us when we lack wisdom in trials, and that remedy is prayer. Go to him in prayer, and God will answer. When we lack wisdom, God commands us to ask him for it. The wisdom that James is talking about here is the wisdom in trials, and the rest of the verse fills in and tells us why we should ask God for wisdom. It gives us three reasons why we should turn to God for wisdom in the moments of trial that we face in life. The first of these is because God commands us to ask for it. Why should we do what God says? Because he's God. And part of trusting him is believing his commands and acting accordingly. And as I've already told you in this verse, in James 1.5, the word that says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. This is a command. It's something that God calls us to obey. And part of following Jesus Christ, part of living the Christian life, is obeying the commands of God. And so the first reason why we should follow Jesus and why we should ask God for wisdom in the moments of trial is simply because God commands us to do so. The second reason, though, is given to us in the following phrase. It's a phrase that describes God himself, but in the process of describing God, it tells us why we should ask him for wisdom. So the second reason why we should ask God for wisdom is because God is generous by nature with wisdom. It's part of the very fabric of God's being to provide people who look to him for wisdom with the wisdom that they need. Let's look again at uh, verse 5. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God, and then we have this phrase, who gives generously to all without finding fault. 
This clause describes the person of God to us. But in describing the person of God to us, it gives us a really good reason why we should go to God in prayer when we lack wisdom in trials. The first thing that we see in this passage, in this uh, phrase, is this word generously. And this is an unusual word in the Greek language. It's a word that describes God's generosity to those who ask him for help. It tells us, in a sense, that God is not stingy with wisdom. He doesn't have to be persuaded to provide with wisdom to people who need it. Instead, James says, not only does God command you to seek his wisdom, but It's a beautiful command. It's a great command because God is generous with wisdom. He loves to give wisdom to people who look to him for answers that they need in the moments of trial. And notice what follows this word generously. Because the very next phrase says that God gives generously to all. This means you don't have to walk with God for 30 years in order to get the wisdom that you need in trials. All you need to do is ask God for it. And God generously gives wisdom to baby Christians and to Christians who have walked with God for the entirety of their lives. The promise in this passage is God gives generously to all. And then we find this phrase, without finding fault. Without finding fault. Now this is an important phrase and an interesting one. Without finding fault literally means without mocking. And one of the problems that we face relationally with other people, with other human beings, is that sometimes we're in, a, we're in a problem, we're stuck, we need something, and we actually know the person who could help us out with that. That person's kind of a jerk. And so we sometimes refuse to ask people who could help us for help because we're afraid of how we're going to be received. The moment of trial that we experience where we need answers, where wisdom is necessary for us, those moments of trial are moments for us to either react in pride or to react in humility. It takes humility to come to God and look to him and ask him to obey his command for wisdom. But we've all been burned by someone who found fault with us for not having what we need. Right after I graduated from college, my parents sold me their car, which was this sweet Chevy Lumina Euro. It looked exactly like this. It was this color and the whole everything. And it had these great, you know, rims. And uh, it also had this awesome spoiler on the back. This car became a trial in my life, let me tell you. But shortly after I bought it, when I was still uh, just a young person, um, not even yet engaged to Suzanne, but we were dating. After I bought this car from my parents and started driving it around, it was low mileage. It was less than a year old. Uh, They gave it to me at a really good price to try to help me out because I needed a good car to get started in my life as an adult. And um, one time I was driving home, I think from Suzanne's house after, you know, we'd spent time, we'd spent time together, spent time with her parents. I was driving home back to my parents' house with whom I lived for a year until we got married and all of a sudden, I just felt, I just smelled the smell of antifreeze really strongly. And this mist came out of the top of the, you know, where the, um, 
the defogger, the defog, defogger, the defogger is a fog came out of the defogger and it smelled like antifreeze and it fogged up the windshield to the point where it was like dangerous for me to keep driving. And I had to like pull over and rifle around in the glove box to try to find something to wipe it off. Well, I made it home safely and I opened the windows and, you know, I, I was able to get home, but I, I took it to, I didn't know, I had, you know, I took it to a mechanic nearby. I mean, I grew up in this area, but I'd never owned a car before that needed fixing. So I just took it to the nearest garage near where my parents lived. And I began describing the problem to this guy who came out when I pulled in, who was a mechanic. And as soon as I described the problem to him, he laughed in my face and said, I mean, it's obviously the Keter core. Don't you know that? Well, no, I didn't know that exactly. Because I'm not a mechanic, and I know nothing about cars, and I'm not mechanically inclined. And I was humiliated. I was humiliated to be scorned for my lack of wisdom about cars, about the specific application of knowledge that I needed in that moment. Anyone who's lived in this world, who's searched for wisdom or knowledge in this world, knows exactly what this is like. People are very good at making us feel foolish when we don't know what to do in any given situation in life. And one reason why God commands us and calls us to ask him for wisdom, to call on him in prayer for wisdom in the moments of trial is because God isn't like this. God is not someone who will mock you for your lack of wisdom. God is not the kind of one a kind of person who will make you feel inferior for not knowing what to do in a situation in life. Instead, James tells us that the God we serve, the God we worship, gives generously to all without finding fault. That is, the promise that God makes to us when he commands us to come to him in prayer in the moments of trial are that he is not going to mock you. He's not going to scorn you for not being wise enough to know the answer. Instead, like a loving father, he's going to welcome you into his presence and genuine, uh, generously and genuinely lay out for you the wisdom that you need. Why should we go to God in prayer, in trials, when we need his wisdom? We should do it because of the very nature of who God is. God is generous by nature with wisdom. And so when you and I don't go to God in prayer, when we go to other people or we rely on our own understanding in the moments of trials, we're cutting ourselves off from the gracious gift of God who wants to use that trial to refine us and to make us wise. We should go to God in prayer for wisdom. We should ask God for wisdom to deal with trials. One, because God commands us to do it. Two, because God is generous with wisdom. And third, because God promises to give it to us. Look at the end of our verse. It says in James 1.5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. That's a promise. God promises to provide his people with wisdom when we look to him for the source of wisdom in life. 
And when you and I try to battle the trials and the disappointments and the heartaches that we face in life alone, and we don't ask for God's help, not only are we not getting everything that God wants to do for us and in us and to us in trials, but we're missing out on the assistance that God promises to us if we will take him by faith and look to him for wisdom and prayer. Now, it's beyond the scope and the time available that I have in this message to talk about how God gives wisdom. I'll just cut to the bottom of the page and tell you. God gives wisdom in many ways, but the two primary ways he does it is, one, through his word, and two, through godly counselors. And often those two work together. A godly counselor will take you to the word of God, and they'll show you the principles, principles that you may already know, but they'll tell you how that relates to the problems that you're facing in life. They will tell you and explain to you how that truth that you've read for years actually relates to the situation that you find yourself in. And so part of the process of maturity that God is working in your life as a Christian is putting you through the trials of life, but you're not alone as you face the trials of this life. And in fact, far from being alone, and part of what God wants to do in you is he wants to teach you to come to him for the wisdom that you need in trials. And so the bottom line for all of this is very simple. Praying for wisdom in trials is an intentional act of faith. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and you persevere in that faith, you follow him for the rest of your life, which all genuine Christians do, you're going to need help along the way. But thanks be to God, he has promised that help to us when we turn to him, when we pray to him and ask him for wisdom. Because praying for wisdom is an intentional act of faith.